starting a new series today. We're going to walk through the book of 1 Peter, and we're going to move uh, pretty slow. We're going we're gonna to take it slow. It's, it's, not a, it's not a long book, but we're going to take our time. It's packed full of a lot of stuff that we want to um, just, just dig into. And so we're going to um, go up to Advent. We'll take a break from Advent. And then starting at the beginning of the year, we'll jump back in, and it'll probably take us uh, through most of the spring. And so that's kind of where we're headed in the next several months as far as this book goes. So let me pray for us, and then we are going to jump into this, uh, these few verses here. Father, I'm thankful for this book as I've um, dug back into it a lot in the last several weeks, and I'm thankful that um, as we're Um, reading and listening and hearing what God is saying to us through Peter, um, that it's so um, just relevant and timely for the world we live in today. So I pray this morning that we would be able to read your word and understand your word, and that we would kind of put ourselves under your word to allow you to change us through it. And we want to be expectant this morning that you would change us through your spirit as we Look at it as we look at these verses. And we're thankful for it, and we're thankful for your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. The longest uh, period of time I've, I've ever lived in another culture or country was when shortly after graduating college, I lived in China for a year. And um, I was teaching English and um, kind of doing mission work there as an English teacher. That was kind of our platform there. And even um, as we were there for a year, I never felt like that place was home. I never felt like that place was actually home. And a lot of it was because we had reminders all around us all the time that this was not our home, that this, this kind of place was not natural uh, to, the people, to me and the people we were with, the way people, uh, the way we looked, the way we dressed, the language we spoke, um, our customs. Like every single day, almost every moment of every day, it was a reminder that this isn't our home. Not good missionaries, we tried to connect well and we tried to adopt a lot of the customs of the Chinese to be able to um, develop friendships and relationships and preach the gospel to them and and care and love for them well. Um, And we were able to do enough to make China a temporary home for that year, Uh, but it never truly felt like home. And a lot of that was because we knew, at least at at my season of life, I knew it probably wasn't going to be a a long stay there. So that kind of kept me from probably jumping all the way in and making it truly my home. Uh, But it was clear that it wasn't home. And that changed a lot of how we approached things. I was always thinking about stuff going on back here in, in Oklahoma and what was home here in the United States while I was in China for that year. And one of the, the clearest things we knew that why that wasn't home was because on the main strip there in the city we lived in, oftentimes we would walk by a McDonald's and a KFC. And I've never craved, loved those two places like I ever did that year. Like we, we saw those places, it, it smelled like home, it, 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 it tasted like home. We'd go in there and there was a sense of nostalgia there, uh, eating the cheap, cheap uh, cheeseburgers and chicken. Um, but that was a clear sense that, that it changed us. It changed us and it changed how we approached living there because it wasn't really our home. And this letter is written to a group of people like us um, who are citizens of the kingdom of God. 
but still live in an earthly country like us. Um, And this is why this letter is so helpful to us as we read it. It's like Peter is writing this letter to us, and we have more similarities than I even expected before I really dug into this letter more in the last several weeks. Because being citizens in the kingdom of heaven, but also being citizens in a nation here on earth is, is difficult. It's complicated. There's so many tensions that we face feeling like we have one foot in one place and one foot in another place. And so we're constantly needing to wrestle with this if we're followers of Jesus. And if you're not wrestling with that, if you're not feeling that tension, I think Peter wants us to feel the tension. And hopefully as we work our way through this book, you'll begin to feel the tension and be aware of um, these two kind of uh, being citizens of two places, how it can affect us. In the last 10 years, um, I felt a bit more like an outsider as a follower of Jesus in our country and in our city. And I think a lot of cultural commentators that are coming from a Christian perspective would agree. Like there's something that's shifted in the last uh, anywhere from 5 to 15 years, people will say. We'll say 10. And I feel like our culture has gone from, as it relates to Christianity and Christians in general, from being um, maybe indifferent or just tolerant to Christians maybe 10 or 15 years ago and leading up to that, to nowadays it feels like um, they're, they're, they're oftentimes they're, they're some, there's some negativity towards us. It's almost like there's some againstness when it comes to Christianity. And maybe even hatred in some ways. There's, there's some hostility here. And this makes it difficult to know how to live out our faith in an honest way in this world that feels like it's changing and changing rapidly. And this forces us to ask some big questions that Peter's going to help us answer throughout this book. Things like how as a church, as a people, um, on the one hand, can we not retreat from culture, not retreat from the world and build our own little enclaves and bubbles of Christianity, but also not look exactly like the world. Not assimilate ourselves so much in the world that people can't tell the difference of that, that who we serve and who we love above everyone else. How can we be missionaries that engage the culture with wisdom? Missionaries are sent ones like the scripture describes us. And knowing, engaging culture and living out our faith among the culture, it may, and this may be growing, that on one kind of group of people, we're called bigots, maybe. That may be our, our, our kind of our suffering. And on the other side, a group of people may call us too soft on things. We find ourselves caught in between groups of people more than ever. At least that's the way I'm seeing it, and, and others as well. We might be marginalized. Suffering may increase in the workplace. We may be alienated by being strange, from being weird, from being different in how we live. This may be what's coming for us. Again, I'm not just kind of throwing out, trying to make us scared and afraid, but I think we just need to realize, hey, this is is the world that it seems to be, the direction it seems to be going, right? The arrow seems to be pointing in this way when it comes to our culture. And it's even as we approach the Bible, there seems to be this tension that the, the, the authors speak of, right? Like you have places that tell us to love our enemies, Love our enemies and pray for them. But then you also, on the other end, have these places where it says, us expect the world to hate you. They hated Jesus. If you're liked by the world, there's probably something wrong. Right? That's, that's what, that's what that, those scriptures are telling us. So even in the scriptures, there feel like there's a tension in how we live this life. 
And this, this letter is going to help us, I think, navigate that tension um, as we kind of walk through life and as we get to walk through this book. So let's, let's jump in here. This is a, a greeting. This is how the letters in the New Testament often begin with a greeting, and Peter introduces himself. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle meaning um, he, someone who spent time with Jesus, someone who saw Jesus and was really led by Jesus there in the early days, right? And then he goes on to say, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Here's how uh, commentator Karen Jobes, Jobes talks about um, Peter's audience. Peter's readers were experiencing various kinds of trials. They were causing them varying degrees of grief and suffering. Their Christian faith was being slandered and maligned. Their social status, family relationships, and possibly even their livelihood were threatened. When one's Christian faith is criticized and even mocked, it is natural that one may begin to doubt the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which I think is what provokes Peter to write this letter. These, these, this audience, these readers um, of, of Peter's letter, the original um, intended audience was in an area called Asia Minor. And I have a map up here, which is modern-day Turkey. And if you look at that map, these are the people he kind of was writing this letter originally to. And if you look, you'll see some familiar um, cities there, words that sound familiar. Ephesus, Colossae, Galatia, all places that Paul uh, traveled to and wrote epistles to. So this was a, a, a common area where there was a dispersion or a scattering of, of Christians. Um, after Pentecost, they, they scattered and they were began settling and living in these places. Peter authored the book from Rome, but it was delivered to Asia Minor in these churches by a man named Silvanus. And we'll hear more about him later as the letter is closing. And Silvanus maybe even wrote the letter for Peter. He may even uh, tr transcribe the letter. You'll see that language come up in 1 Peter as well. So he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in these places. And those two words, elect exiles, are, are so important for the rest of this letter. This is an identity statement. This is he's telling them who they are. And there's so much wrapped up in these two words. Because the most important thing about us, about any human being, is our identity. It's our identity. Um, who, who we belong to and whose we are. Who we are and whose we belong to. And this is Peter's point in starting out the letter like this. He wants to make sure that the, 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 the audience and us as well are crystal clear on who we are and whose we are. Because he's wanting them to, he, he wants to, to help them live faithfully in this world that they find themselves in. And he decides to begin with reminding them of their identity. Being crystal clear on who they are as followers of Jesus. So look at these, look, let's look at these two words briefly to talk about this identity statement that he gives them. So let's talk about elect. The elect exile. So let's look at this idea of elect. Um, this idea of election or being chosen is often um, off-putting off to people, um, for sure, in our country. And it can be a little bit, um, it be, can be hard to hear that at first reading. 
And I think the reason this is the case is because we grew up in, in the United States and, and even in the West in a very individualistic country. Like, we get to make our own decisions. We get to decide our future. It's the, it's the pull yourself up by your bootstraps, the American dream. We're kind of used to that. This is the culture we leave, live in. We're also in a democracy where we get a vote for everything. And so we're used to getting a say in everything that's decided. And so it makes sense that when we hear something that's kind of done for us, we kind of feel a little bit, now wait a minute. Wait, does that mean that I don't have a say in it? What is that, what's happening here? And so we often think that when it comes to our salvation, that we are choosing God. We made, we made that decision. And if we're saved, then that was the decision that we made. And actually the Bible would affirm this. The Bible would say, yeah, you're right. You did make this decision. But the Bible teaches that before you made that decision, God was doing something inside of you to cause you to be able to respond to the gospel call, the gospel message, his grace that was presented in the gospel. God initiates the salvation process by awakening us spiritually. We were dead. Somebody had to awaken us. He awakens us spiritually, and then we make that decision. We have the capability to actually say, yes, I have faith in God. I choose God. So yes, we made a decision for God, but God was working behind the scenes first, and this was all according to his plan. Before the foundation of the world, Ephesians tells us. Paul lays that out in Ephesians 1 and 2. Now, people aren't elected because they're somehow more morally superior to others. And Peter's clear, and he's going to be clear in this book. But we're elected simply because we're set apart for God's specific plan and purpose. God had a plan, and he had a purpose, and he elected some. W.E. Boring, a commentator, says this about this idea. To declare that the readers are elect means that they belong to the holy people of God. That is, not that they are more, more pious or that they are, more, that they are morally superior to others, but they have been called to form a distinctive community with a singular mission. To be called holy means that they, like Israel, have been set apart for a special purpose in God's saving plan. So if you struggle with this idea of elect or election or being chosen, I encourage you to wrestle with God's word on it. Wrestle with God's word. That's the first place to go to really wrestle with this. This, this word chosen or elect or election is used over 20 times in the New Testament. Right? That word is used there, that idea. Um, it's clearly seen in the Old Testament, starting with Abram. God shows up to this man named Abram out of the blue. He's done nothing. He's just a guy in the wilderness. God shows up and says, I'm going to choose you to create this nation from you. From your descendants is going to be the nation of Israel. And we see all throughout, which then he changes his name to Abraham, God does. And throughout Abraham's descendants, we see these, these weird kind of things where God chooses one brother over another brother. Even choosing the younger over the older because he's choosing the younger to see the bloodline go through, God's people go through. And people get bent out of shape with that. And people can't figure out, why choose him? Why choose? And God is clearly doing this throughout the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, he is, he is laying his love and his, his attention on a certain group of people, and we see that. Um, we see them bringing in non-Jewish people to um, be a part of God's people throughout the Old Testament as well. So this idea of uh, the, this idea of election is foundational to our salvation. It's foundational, which is why Peter, I think, begins the letter with it. 
You wouldn't come out of the gate in verse, verse 1 with this, this big idea if it wasn't massively important to what Peter is going to talk about. So you have elect. Now you have exiles. Okay? Exile simply means people who are living, often for an extended period of time, in a place where they do not hold citizenship. Other words that you can use that I may use interchangeably are aliens or sojourners or foreigners. Right? These are all words that can be used interchangeably with that word exiles. And one pastor this week had a good way to remember this. You have kind of a vertical axis and a horizontal axis with these two words. The vertical axis is uh, the, 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 the being chosen or elect. But that's the vertical axis and how we relate to God. And exiles is the horizontal axis, how we relate to others, how we relate to our world, how we relate to culture. And, those, and, and this pastor highlighted that, that those two things make a cross, right? X axis, Y axis, they make a cross. So it's a way to remember our identity that Peter is trying to highlight in this particular passage. So now let's look at verse 2. So coming out of verse 1, you have this big identity statement made of these two words. And he says, according to. So the way though that identity happens, that's what that according to preposition means. So how that happens is to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And then he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So he's really answering how did we become elect exiles? Why is that identity? And then he walks through these three or, or four statements here that are foundational for our identity. They're our foundation for our hope. This is how we're given a new identity as Christ followers. So we're going to spend the rest of our time today briefly looking at these three statements that Peter lays out. So let's look at the first one here. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So here's what that means, right? Before the foundation of the world, God didn't just foreknow facts about you. He didn't just know your name or what you would do or decisions you would make. He knew you relationally. He set his sights on you. He set his affections on you. And he knew you intimately before the foundation of the world. That is mind-blowing. It's hard for us to understand in our finite human minds. But the scriptures are clear of that over and over and over. And he starts working in our lives before we even knew it. He's working in our lives. And oftentimes when we, are, when we become Christians and we start trying to put together kind of the pieces looking back at our lives that led up to that point where we became a Christian, we can, start, we can see like, oh yeah, that and that. And that person, and that conversation. God has been working in our lives since the moment we were born. Even before we were born, he was working in our lives before the foundation of the world. And he didn't just design the way we would be saved. He actually saved us. It's a big difference. He didn't just design the way or the mechanism by which we were saved. He actually saved us. He was the acting agent who saved us. And because of that, because of this, this identity and his foreknowledge, he can claim absolute authority over our lives. We belong to him. We are his. You see this language throughout the Old Testament. We are his people, and he is our God. It's statements of, of belonging, of covenant, of, of intimacy. And that's a good thing. It's especially a good thing when we find ourselves in a world that feels like, where do we stand? It's shaky. Where, 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 where do we plant our feet? This is such good news for us. The next statement, in the sanctification of the Spirit. 
got these prepositions here that if you're if you really want to dig in and even look at some of the Greek in this, there's fascinating looking at why he chose the prepositions that he did. And it was very intentional in the prepositions he chose. They're slightly different prepositions, but they all have a different kind of angle of saying something. So he says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. And one thing to notice here, typically when you see things, uh, the Trinitarian kind of idea mentioned, like in the Nicene Creed and other places, usually it naturally goes God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. But Peter here is going God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. And most people think he does that because this is the natural way that we often experience things as, as humans, right? God has set his sights on us before the foundation of the world. The Spirit does something inside of us, and then we love Jesus, and we put our faith in Jesus. So Jesus is actually the third thing here. But let's look at this idea in the sanctification of the Spirit. This means that the Spirit is the vehicle or the means by which God saves us. It's by the foreknowledge of God through the Spirit— or even in the Spirit there. Um, it is the Spirit who helps us understand the gospel, convicts us of our sin, reassures God's, the, the God's love for us, helps us pray, helps us grow into maturity, guides us, tutors us, helps us understand the Scripture. It just, the Spirit is doing all of these things for us. And Peter's just saying, hey, this is a major part of your identity. This is a major part of who you are as followers of Jesus. Then we move down to the third for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, most people think that that and for sprinkling with his blood is a bit of a nuanced statement or almost like a modifying statement for the one he made before it. Okay, so you can kind of push these two kind of phrases um, together. So for obedience to Jesus Christ, right? It's not a generic spirituality that God calls us to. It's like now you're saved and you're kind of in this just big, like Christian thing and do your best to live a life that, you know, honors him, whatever. No, it's, it's more specific than that. There's a specific purpose for God's grace working through the Holy Spirit. And that's for obedience to Jesus, right? There's a for there. It's a because. Because or the purpose of our obedience to Jesus, right? Jesus is the, the, the end. He's the aim. It's to, it's to follow him. It's to know him. It's to love him. But then he adds for the sprinkling with his blood. And this takes us back to the Old Testament. So we need to go back and do some Old Testament work here. Peter, being a, um, a, a Jew from the very, his, you know, he's, he's, he's a Jewish person. right? He, he gets it. He knows. He knows the stories. He knows Moses. He knows the Exodus. So as he's writing, he is coming from a Jewish perspective. So this is a guy who's well-versed in the Old Testament. So let's go to Exodus 24. 3 through 8. And this is really going to help us understand why that strange statement there is almost like a tag on to Jesus in this kind of Trinitarian like formula here, okay? So Exodus 24, 3. Moses came. This is right after God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And Moses is now presenting those commandments to the people. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, Listen to the confidence here in, Israel, in the people of God. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So yeah, we got it. We'll do it all. We're, we're good, right? We read and that doesn't happen. Uh, verse 4. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood... And put it in basins, 
and half of the blood, he threw it against the altar. Okay, so you got half the blood is thrown against an altar and half the blood are put in these bowls or basins. Verse 7, then he took the book of covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, here's they say again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. Like they are fired up here, right? They're like spiritual high here. They're ready to attack. They want to they obey, which is good, right? They want to they do all that the Lord has commanded. In verse 8, and Moses took the blood, probably the, 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 what was in the basin, and he threw it on the people, right? Sprinkled it, right? Remember Peter's words here, kind of threw the blood on the people. And he said, behold, or look, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words, okay? This is where the sacrificial system began, right? And it would continue to get be built out, right? And there was an ancient Near East custom where two people, um, this actually, this, this kind of same idea with blood would actually occur when two people were coming together and making a really serious agreement. Animals would be sacrificed, and the blood of the animal would seal the covenant between the two parties, right? Like a big deal. It's like, this is, this is for sure. We're going for, it's almost like more important than a signature in our day, but it's similar to that. Like it sealed it. It's a signature. And this wasn't true just in the secular culture. It was also in the biblical culture as well, right? Um, and it was a symbolic way of saying that if either one of us breaks this covenant, this agreement we're entering into, may, may, our, um, may we be like the animals who were just killed. So I am, this is a strong, like, hey, I'm going to keep my end of the bargain. If not, death is awaiting me. My blood can be shed, right? This is a serious, serious covenant that people would enter into. And this is what took place amongst the people of God as well. And this is the beginning of the sacrificial system. And think about it. Remember, the Israelites have said, we're going to do everything. We're going to obey. We're going to do all that, we're going to do all that you're commanding us, God. And they want to, and that's a good thing. And then he sprinkles the people with blood. Um, and in the Bible, in the sacrificial system, when, when that covenant is broken, which we do often as God's people, God's people in the Old Testament did that often, there was a system set up to where you can make sacrifices because blood had to be shed. They could shed animals' blood instead of their own blood if they broke the covenant. So God set up this system, this kind of this in the law, in his grace to make a way for people to still be made right. But people had to do it over and over and over. The sacrificial system was, was dirty. It was awful. You had animals everywhere that were killed and slaughtered. It was this whole thing, and you had to do it every year. And it was, it was the way that you stayed connected to God in relationship with him. When the covenant is broken, blood must be shed. That's the Old Testament law, right? And God has made a covenant with us, and we're in covenant with him. So the purpose of God electing us by his foreknowledge and through the Spirit, is that we might be obedient to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. Notice his there, the very end there, for the sprinkling with his blood. Does it say animal blood? Does it say blood of oxen? He says his blood, Jesus' blood. So here, Peter is making a shift here to see that Jesus now is the actual mediator of the covenant. It's not a priest. It's not um, uh, uh, slaughtered bulls, animals. It's Jesus. Jesus is now the one whose blood would be shed on our behalf. And again, the, 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 the recipients of this letter know this. Right? They live on the other side of the resurrection, the same side we live on. Right? This is the way we remain in relationship with God and we enter into relationship with God is through Jesus. So they know this. He's reminding them of this like us. 
The Old Testament sacrifices weren't going to uh, take away once and for all the, the punishment and the penalty for sin. And so our purpose just isn't for salvation. or It is, but there's more to that. And that's why Peter's starting the letter here. It's, to, it's for is so we can live as faithful exiles by being obedient to Jesus. And when we do fall short of our sin, we don't have to beat ourselves up and be racked with shame and guilt and be afraid that God's going to kill us because we broke the covenant. We don't have to worry about that because of Jesus. Because we have one who's kept the covenant perfectly. And because he kept the per- covenant perfectly, he now is the, 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 the animal, the spotless lamb that went before us, died the death, his blood shed, so that we might stand before God and in relationship with him. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And we need to see this as Peter's writing, these layers that come out in the Old Testament. And so we remember this as we're trying to live as exiles. We remember that there, there's one who shed his blood for us. So we don't have to suffer the same penalty. And so we, when we fail as exiles, when we don't do what we're supposed to do, we can run to him and ask for forgiveness and then try again, right? Continue to be fa- as faithful as possible Um, in our living as exiles in this world. And again, this is all about identity. We're given an identity. Our identity is a gift given to us by God through Jesus. And here's the deal. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you are going to build your identity on something. We talk about this a lot here. You're going to build it on something, and you're going to have to build it by achievement, by going after it, by taking it by working on something for your identity. And you will always be dependent. Your identity, your, your joy, your peace, the things that come from our identity, it will always be based on how you're doing in life. It will always be based on your performance. So when you're doing well, then you're going to feel really good about your identity. When you're not doing well or you fail, which we all will, you're going to feel awful because something so deep like your identity has been shaken or it's been destroyed. And ultimately, you're going to become a slave to whatever you're aiming for for your identity. Your time, your attention, your energy, your money, your resources are going to be put at the altar of whatever you're trying to get your identity in. And here's the thing about the things outside of Jesus. You're going to have to continue to feed it and feed it and feed it more and more and more, and it will never satisfy. This is not the recipe to live in freedom. You do not want to perform, have to perform your way into an identity. And outside of Jesus, I don't know how you get an identity other than working for it or trying to become someone and kind of fake it to belong to a group of people. And actually prevents you from loving others. Actually prevents that because if somebody gets in the way of your new identity or what you're going after, you have to remove them. You have to remove them from your life, remove them from your path, because going after your identity is the most important thing. If someone disagrees with how you're going after, you're done. Like, you're out of my life. I don't need you. I need people who will affirm my identity and not disagree with my identity. So you want to remove people and the identities around you because you're trying to create that for yourself. And we're all guilty of this on some level, right? We're all guilty of looking for something outside of Jesus for love and acceptance and all of those things. The Christian identity, and to say it another way, our salvation is received as a gift by faith. That's why we can't be prideful, that we're humble. We can't boast in ourselves that we've done anything to deserve this. It's all his work. We boast in him. This should make us a gracious, humble, and gentle people. 
that can actually now live as exiles in this war that's going to be really difficult on us. We're going to be marginalized. We're going to be spoken um, ill towards, right? And we have to remember our identity. Remember who we are and whose we were and how we became those people. Nothing of our own doing, purely by, grace, by God's gracious, sovereign act in Jesus Christ, period. And that's the gospel. Any other identity, you're going to have to work towards. You're going to have to fight for. And you're, perf- you're going to have to perform for. And it's not a way to freedom. So how do we do this? How do we do this? How do we, how do we live as exiles? Now, Peter's going to help us throughout the book. The rest of the book, really, is about how do we do this? So application today uh, might be a little bit different, um, but I really want us to, th- to think about two things as we kind of wrap up. Number one, we have to remember our identity. We have to remember our identity. We have to remember that um, we are um, God's people, right? And we'll get to that here in a second. Um, I know it's misspelled there. Just saw that. Um, we'll get to that here in a second, distracted now by my misspelling. Um, but he wants us to know two things. Remember your identity. And we have to be aware of the areas of our growth and being exiles and sojourners, right? So remember our identity. He's made that clear. And how can we grow in these areas of being um, exiles and sojourners, right? Um, and, and this is kind of two things I think will help us become more aware of how we're doing or ways to think about being exiles. And these are two spectrums, right? And I'll call this, this first one up here, the engagement spectrum. These are two extremes I think we run to um, when we try to engage the world, okay? And I think there's a middle ground here, right? These are two extremes, and we need to stay in the middle. The first side, you see, is assimilation, right? We assimilation. We, we look too much like the world. Maybe that's you, right? You love the same things the world loves around you. You build your identity on what people around you build theirs on. You're kind of guilty of that, maybe. You lose your distinctiveness, like who you are, it's hard for people around you to see um, that you're any different than the rest of them. So you lose that ability to speak truth, and it, it, it kind of have the salt to it, right, when, when we're, when we're um, living our life that way. It hurts our witness. It can hurt our influence for Jesus because we have nothing to point to that's different. If you look just like the world, like Peter says later in this book, he'll say we need to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we, that we have. How are you going to give a reason for the hope that you have that if you're hoping in the same things the world's hoping in, right? We have to be different enough to give that answer to people, and we'll get to that later in the book. So this is the first extreme. The other side is withdrawal, or I can say isolation, right? You remove yourself from the world. Maybe you have the tendency to remove yourself from people who don't know Jesus, choosing your time to spending your time exclusively around those who are Christians, rather than looking for ways to build friendships, serve, and opportunities to speak about Jesus to those who might not know him. Right? So you're like, let's build our bubble. Let's build our enclave. Let's kind of let's keep our distance there. This hurts your witness and influence in another way because you don't have any shared experiences. There's no relational equity. Like when, when you're trying to give a reason for the hope that you have, like if you don't have any relationships, then who's going to be asking you for the hope that you have? If you're not in the world and you're with people and you're connected to people, you have to have relationships. Look at the ways, the, 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 the people that God's put around you, the things you're involved with, your hobbies, your workplace, these kinds of things. And so I think we're all, we all probably lean one way or the other, and I think the goal is to kind of stay in the middle, right? It's the in the world but not of the world tension that Jesus spells out in the Gospels. Both extremes can hurt our ability to live on mission. 
And here's another spectrum. I'll call this the posture spectrum. Okay, you have compassion and contending. Right? Nailed the spelling of those two. I'm going to pat myself on the back. Um, compassion. Now, I think this is less about uh, extremes and more about you need both of these. This is a balance. You have to have both of these, I think, as good missionaries or exiles. Right? You're, if you're the more compassionate person, you want to build bridges. You lean towards accepting people. You're winsome. But maybe you haven't lived distinct enough to have opposition, right? Like people aren't, like you don't, when, when, when the scripture talks about suffering, you're like, suffering, I don't, I don't suffer. Like people like me. I'm a, I'm a winsome person. Like I don't ever, I'm not marginalized at all for my faith. There may be an issue there, right? Maybe you haven't taken a stand on things that God speaks clearly on. Maybe you haven't had one of those, hey, Jesus is the only way to God conversations in a long time with someone who doesn't know Jesus. That's a hard conversation, that Jesus is the only way to God, period. That's the truth in the scripture, and that's hard to say. In some cases, uh, loving someone, maybe loving someone the best in that moment, might mean saying hard things to them. Love doesn't always mean accepting. Love also means saying what you need to say in love in that moment. You need to know that Jesus and his closest disciples were hated, and the overwhelming majority of them, the, the, the 12, were killed for their faith. So we need to remember that, right? You need compassion, yes. But if it's all compassion, there may be an issue. Now let's go to the other side, contending. You're quick to stand for the gospel. You like a good discussion on things that really matter. You tend to see differences with people maybe that aren't Christians. You see the differences more than you see the similarities. You maybe have trouble building bridges and, and seeing like common human conditions that we all have. Maybe you need to show more compassion and empathy and hear someone else's story, their brokenness. Because sometimes loving someone in that moment is actually caring for them before you try to convict them. Sometimes you need to care for someone before you bring the full gospel in that moment. You need to remember passages like, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Maybe you need to think about those scriptures more. If we just have one or the other, or you think kind of being in the world but not of the world is one or the other, you're going to have issues, and it's going to be hard for you to witness, to have influence, for people to, to, to see and hear about Jesus out of your life. Right? We must have both of those to be faithful exiles. So here's the illustration I kept coming to my mind all week. It was like I feel like our lives, at least what I'm feeling, the church— is we're like on a boat, a small boat out in the ocean. And for a while in our culture, like I said, the majority of my Christian life up until the last probably you know, eight years or so, it felt like this. Like it was calm water. You get on that boat, you could stand up, waves were calm. But now it feels like the waves have picked up a little bit. The boat's a little unsteady. It's not a hurricane force yet, but it's, it's picked up. And there, there feels, there's seen some unsteadiness in our world. So how do we react? Where do we put more weight? How do we balance ourselves so we can stay afloat on that boat and be faithful people who are present in our world? And that's, I think, what Peter wants us to do here. That's what I would want for, for us to come out of this book with a sense of confidence to be able to live as faithful elect exiles in our world and be able to make a difference in the people that God has put around us because God has given us a mission. He has given us a purpose for being in the world, and that is to glorify him and see people who are far from him, who don't know him, come to faith. 